Cool fact, a crocodile can't stick out its tongue. Also, you can get health insurance for a month or just under a year in some states. United Healthcare short-term insurance plans, underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage for you. Learn more at UH1.com. I'm Kylie Camps, and welcome to the podcast. This space is dedicated entirely to making a difference in the lives of women. I believe we all have a right and a responsibility to truly live our best lives. It all begins with curiosity, changing our thinking and cultivating more self-love. Through thoughtful conversations and shared experiences, I really hope that you can take something away from this podcast. I'm a business owner, a speaker, a sleep consultant and mum of twin boys. I've also recently completed some training in the cognitive behavioral therapy space and I'm super, super passionate about the ability that we all have to really improve our days. And ultimately, when we take ownership of improving our days, we're really improving our whole life. So let's get stuck into today's episode. Welcome to today's episode. This podcast is a conversation with Dr. Peter Wright. Now, Dr. Peter has been on the podcast before where we covered the topic of PMDD and also PMS. If you've not listened to that episode, put it on your list because it's such a great conversation and it's one of the podcasts that I've received the most um, feedback about. It's the podcast that people stop me when I'm out and about and just give me a big hug and say, oh, thank you so much for bringing light to this topic. And I'm confident that this episode will also have a lot of takeaways for you listening. So in this chat, we cover a lot. We speak about the menstrual cycle and why the period really is only such a small part of our cycle. And Dr. Peter talks about leaning in to our cycle and our period as a report card for our health. And I just loved hearing that. She has some brilliant analogies. I honestly think she should write a book, a children's book, because the way that she puts things into perspective and paints this picture, it just gives you so much clarity and it's such a pleasure to learn from her. So we speak about the period, the cycle, what's normal, what's not normal when it comes to period pain. We also speak about the pill when it comes to exactly how it impacts our cycle and also as contraception. We explore other contraception options as well. She's such a wealth of knowledge as you would expect, but she just blows me away because she can just speak so freely on all of these topics and it's such a joy to listen to. We also touch on fertility and whether or not freezing your eggs or looking into your options when you do reach your 30s, mid 30s, late 30s. Um, Just, I guess, she provides so much clarity on exactly why it is important to be informed. We also speak about vulvas and what's normal. And there's just so many great things in this episode. So stick with it. As I said, it is a longer episode, but I felt like we could have spoken for hours and hours more on these topics. If you're not familiar with Dr. Peter Wright, she's amazing. I think you're really going to enjoy her. I've put her details in the show notes as well. If you would like to connect with her, she is deeply committed to all aspects of women's healthcare. 
She strives to take a holistic approach to managing the health concerns of women of all ages. And you can just feel the passion and enthusiasm and knowledge pouring from her. She's so excited to get this information out there and I'm excited for you to listen to it as well. It would mean the world to both of us if you do take a screenshot right now, pop it up on your Instagram stories, tag us both so that we can share it on our own accounts as well. Now, before we dive into this big, juicy, much-needed conversation, I wanted to take a quick minute to let you know that today's episode is brought to you by Heartwood Farm Byron Bay. Now, if you follow along on Instagram, you may have seen that a couple of weeks ago, I escaped to Heartwood Farm for two nights and it was heaven. Heartwood Farm is located just outside of Byron Bay in a little town called Federal. And it is the most picturesque little location that you could escape to, I think maybe ever. It is surrounded by the most beautiful green rolling hills. There are cows on the property. You've got all of the sounds of the country, but you're nice and close to the beautiful beaches of Byron Bay. You really have the best of both worlds. It's a beautiful cottage that is just set up so nicely. You walk in, everything you could possibly need is there. We planned on going out for dinner into Byron Bay, but once we got to Hartwood Farm, we were like, no, we're not leaving. We went to Bangalore, I think one morning for coffee, which we didn't even really need to because the cottage has the most amazing coffee in like in stock in the kitchen. Um, But you just want to stay there. It's got this beautiful plunge pool, which is heated and it's just so nice. So if you are in need of a getaway, which so many of us are, thanks 2020, um, and it's safe for you to travel to Federal, definitely check out Heartwood Farm. I'm going to put those details for you in the show notes as well as their Instagram handle. Jump over, give them a follow, check out their website, put it on your list of places to visit. And If you get in touch with Heartwood Farm, Byron Bay, and let them know that you heard about them through this podcast ad, they're happy to throw in a complimentary bottle of Italian white or red wine only if you mention this podcast ad. So make sure you do that as well. Tell them Kylie Camps sent you and book your accommodation so you have something to look forward to and really, really enjoy it. I cannot recommend it enough. I was just saying on Instagram stories this evening, it was a 10 out of 10 experience. It really was so nice. So that's Heartwood Farm, H-E-A-R-T-W-O-O-D Farm, Byron Bay. And if you mention this ad, you will receive a complimentary bottle of Italian white or red. Now, without further chatter, let's dive into this conversation. I really, really hope that you enjoy it. And I hope that this conversation has you, I guess, feeling a little more informed and inspired and a little more excited about your cycle. Dr. Peter, thank you so much for agreeing to come back on the podcast. Our last conversation was definitely one of those episodes where I received so much feedback online, but also in real life. I had women coming up to me, still have women coming up to me when I go out on the Gold Coast and just give me a big hug and saying, your PMDD episode has been life-changing for me. So, Thank you for that episode again, and thank you for agreeing to come back on. 
Thank you for having me, Kylie. And again, I just wanted to thank you for being so vulnerable and sharing your story because in doing so, that will help a lot of women as you found. Yes, definitely. It's been a really, really eye-opening experience to, I guess, talk about that information and then have so many women get in touch and say, oh my God, listening to that episode made me feel like I'm not crazy and before we hit record today you and I were just saying that's such an unlock for women to just go oh I'm not alone I'm not crazy other people have experienced this too absolutely and I think that for the longest time the way in which women's hormones actually affect our brain and our moods haven't been taken into consideration at all haven't been widely understood or known um, and definitely haven't been communicated to the to the to most women how you know I think we all actually understand we all know um, intrinsically that our hormones are different at different times of the month but to actually have that explained and what happens in the brain um, when when those fluctuations occur can be really life-changing oh absolutely and I'm so excited by the fact that so many more people are open to this and they're having these conversations and it is just becoming more I guess more common to go hey where are you at in your cycle like even over the weekend one of my girlfriends was talk her and I were in a, having a conversation and I said oh wait where are you in your cycle and she had to think about it she was oh you're so right that's why I and it's just I don't know. I think it's so exciting as women that we now have that intel and it's becoming more common knowledge to tap into, okay, where am I at in my cycle? And just sort of putting the pieces into place and connecting the dots of going, ah, yes, that makes sense now. Yep. And just getting the language to be able to have that conversation too. Um, I was laughing because last week I was getting ready for work and my little boy was doing something crazy like getting out of his clothes for the third time that morning when he had to leave to go to daycare in about five minutes and I just kind of screamed like just a a slightly muffled scream at my husband (laughs) what are you doing and I said look I'm sorry it's post ovulatory estrogen drop okay just one moment of rage just give me a little (laughs) moment of rage and he was like okay all right fine are you done and I said yes I'm fine now and so I think when you also are more you're in tune with your body you also can get why it's happening so you don't think oh like what's wrong with me you and you know it's going to pass because you know that the hormones are going to change again so I think that can be really empowering for women too and then you can accept yourself for where you are and do what you need to get you through that moment which I think is the is the key like the knowledge of what's happening is great and then um being in tune with your body so that you know what you need what will help you in that moment is the next bit to unlock and that's where things you know that's where things change and and um you can feel better and accept where you are yeah absolutely for me it just gives me perspective it allows me to kind of zoom out rather than staying in that you know when you're right in that cluster of emotions and rage like you just mentioned rage or anger or sadness or just anxiety or confusion it's so hard 
to zoom out and get perspective, but having the actual intel of looking at my app and seeing where I'm at and understanding what my body and my hormones, and, you know, I say understanding, I've got a very surface level understanding of it, but that surface level understanding does allow me to zoom out and go, ah, yes, okay. <laughs> yeah, maybe I don't need to have this conversation. Maybe I need to take myself off for a walk yes, on the beach or, yes. and then I'll be better Absolutely. when I absolutely and just that intel like we said is so important and speaking of intel and the things that you know are really helpful for us as women and not just women but as humans to know this episode is really about touching on five things that you as a gynecologist would love all women to know so I would love to dive into that And the first point that you mentioned in our pre-show notes is that the menstrual cycle is not just the period. That's the first thing that you want women to know. Yes, and I did touch on this in the last episode, talking about the, the different hormone levels and what was going on beyond the period. But I think that's hopefully something that's starting to be taught more and more. But I think as women, we kind of, when we get our first period, we acknowledge that there's the time of the period and then there's the other three weeks of the month where we don't have the period. And that's kind of all we think of as the menstrual cycle. We know that other stuff must go on. I think many women will know about ovulation, but we don't really fully understand that the menstrual cycle is just so much more than the period. The period is like the end of the menstrual cycle, which is, I guess, why it's called a period. Um, But the things that go on in those three weeks prior to the period are actually the most important parts of the menstrual cycle. Um, And so they're um, starting from the egg growing in the ovary, making hormones. So if you're thinking about the first week of your menstrual cycle is the first is the is the week of the period okay so day one is is um the first day of bleeding and the lining your hormones have fallen to very low because your egg hasn't been fertilized and so the lining of the uterus which is called the endometrium sheds and um and bleeds away to allow a new lining to regrow and then slowly over the next few weeks um, estrogen levels rise as a little follicle inside the ovary so an egg starts to grow and make estrogen and then that estrogen works on the lining of the uterus to um, to build it back up again it works like fertilizer on the lining of the uterus that's I always explain about estrogen being fertilizer for the endometrium which is like the grass of your beautiful uterus Um, and so at mid-cycle you have high estrogen levels and you have a big beautiful egg that's ready to be released and you have a beautiful thick lining of the inside of the uterus and that's when ovulation is about to occur and ovulation is really like the star of the whole menstrual cycle even though the only thing that we generally see on the outside is the period the whole point of the period is the fact that ovulation has occurred it's a sign in most um, women that ovulation has occurred and ovulation I like to think of as the the fireworks component of the menstrual cycle so it's how we as women make our hormones um I uh my 
Lara Bryden, who's a woman who's written a beautiful book that I think I referenced last time, um, who's a naturopathic doctor, um, and her book is called The Period Repair Manual. She always says that if men ovulated, they would be talking about how big their ovulation was and they'd be <laughs> bragging about it. But we, we um, because this is the main event where we make our, our hormones, so mainly estrogen and testosterone, um, so we get a bit of a peak of testosterone just before ovulation too. And then after the egg is released, our estrogen dips a little bit and then we make progesterone. And progesterone helps to make the lining of the uterus receptive for a little baby to implant. Um, and so it rises uh, in the, in the we call the luteal phase of the menstrual cycle, which is after ovulation. And so we can only make progesterone if we ovulate. So I know that I, I'm not sure if last time I spoke about the benefits of estrogen and progesterone and testosterone, but obviously they're important for the lining of the uterus and to and for the growth of the egg and all of that and for fertility, but they're also important for our mental health and our mood, which we did talk about. So estrogen being sort of an um, an energetic hormone, it increases serotonin, our happy hormone in the brain. Um, testosterone, again, is is um, a hormone that makes us feel more full of energy, increases libido. And progesterone is our calming anti-anxiety hormone. So it um, increases GABA in our brains, which makes us feel chilled out and um uh, you know, more blissful. So we need all of those hormones for really good um, mood and brain health, but we also need them for the rest of our body. So estrogen is incredibly important for our bones. Um, so we all know that after menopause, our, um, you know, our bone density decreases. And that's generally because of the fact that our estrogen we, we lose estrogen at that time. So it's really important every month to be making estrogen. Progesterone also has an effect on bone to a lesser degree. Um, estrogen is really good for our cardiovascular health and our metabolic health. So it's good for keeping our blood vessels nice and supple um, and uh, keeping insulin levels um, in, in good control. And um, progesterone is also like an anti-androgen, so anti-testosterone. And it helps having with us having good skin and uh, clear skin and, and strong hair and things like that. So making our hormones, which is what the menstrual cycle and ovulation particularly is all about, is health giving as well as a sign that we are having a, um, a, a good underlying degree of health. So that's why it's so important to be having a regular menstrual cycle. So it's not just mm. about the period. It's about all of that stuff that comes before the period. Um, and for some women who might come to see me who might not have had a period for, you know, six months, um, and they might have been, you know, have thought, oh, well, it's not a problem because I don't have to deal with a period and I don't really like having my period because it's just an inconvenience. Um, they're not, I don't think they're fully understanding that they're missing out on all those amazing health-giving benefits of actually hormones and of ovulating and many times the reasons they're not getting a period is because the body in its wisdom has shut down the reproductive hormones in an effort to uh, protect 
the that person because, for example, if someone's exercising too much, um, not eating enough, um, under a lot of physiological, uh, sorry, psychological stress, um, not getting enough sleep, um, or chronic illness, those kinds of things, the the hypothalamus, which is a gland in the brain, which is like the CEO of all of the hormones, it sort of says um, it's too dangerous for this person to go down the pathway of perhaps um, getting pregnant, so we're just going to shut that off. Mm -hmm. So if you're not getting your period, that's actually a really important sign. So it's a sign that your body is trying to tell you that something's wrong. Um, So I would always say if you're not getting if you've had normal periods and then they go off or or they go missing in action altogether you do need to see somebody about it and explore why that is because you should be thinking about your period a little bit like a monthly report card so if you're getting a regular period um, that's not too heavy that's not too painful that you don't have the world's most terrible PMS or PMDD, um, then it's telling your body that things are generally okay. If things start to change and it becomes more irregular, more heavy, more painful, or goes missing entirely, then you need to be thinking, okay, something's going on underneath the surface because how we ovulate, how we make hormones is a sign of our underlying general health. Mm -hmm. It's not separate. It's like the warning light on a car dashboard. Yes, and it makes total sense. And I love the analogy of thinking about your period like a monthly report card because, I mean, I can't speak for everyone, but I definitely know for myself and a lot of my girlfriends, when we had our first ever period, it was, okay, you've got your period. It's going to come once a month. This is a pad. This is a tampon. Mm -hmm. This is a panty liner and on with it. It was never explained all of these things that are happening below the surface. And I think it's so empowering as women to reframe it. And, you know, so many of my teenage years and my, you know, life in my 20s, I thought that having a period was such a drag and it's such an inconvenience and it's awful and it's this and it's so negative. But really, when you reframe it and you understand what's going on, it's so empowering to look at it and go, okay, this is a report card, it's feedback, it's intel from my on how, I guess, safe my ecosystem is inside yes. my body to be operating. Yes, how you said safe, that's exactly right because, because our bodies, it's really, really important that our body to understand that our bodies have not got like some updated 2020 version of human software. We, we don't have it. Our bodies and our brains and our hormones are like the same version of from thousands of years ago. So mm-hmm. it doesn't get like the woman that comes to see me who's like, but I'm doing so I'm doing everything right. I'm really healthy. I'm going to CrossFit six days a week. I'm eating, um, you know, low carb diet. I'm really healthy. I'm um, getting like six hours sleep. I'm, you know, doing two jobs and studying. And they don't understand that, the, of course, the, they're physically safe. They're not in danger. But their, actu- their perceived stress is actually really high. So, yeah. um, and the hypothalamus is 
gets confused about that because it can't tell the difference if your body is releasing stress hormones like cortisol and adrenaline to a perceived stress it doesn't understand the difference between a perceived stress like you know missing a deadline or doing too much physical activity or under under eating slightly to being in a famine or being chased by a saber-toothed tiger. It doesn't get that. So that's why it shuts off your reproductive system. So it's important to understand that our bodies, even though we're, you know, 2020 women um, and our lives are very different to when we were cave women, our brains and our bodies don't have that updated software. It still operates from a point of view of um, you've got, if you if you have high stress hormones, you must be in you must be in actual danger, and and it will um, behave appropriately to try to protect you. And just another question in regards to that first point as well, Peter. What about for women who are currently pregnant and they're not having a period? What's going on then monthly with their hormones? Are they still having a similar fluctuation? No, that's a good question. So they have. So when you Let's take it back to the luteal phase. So, so you've just ovulated, and you get you get your little dip of estrogen, and then it rises again, and then your progesterone rises. And while that's happening, the egg is floating off down the fallopian tube, hoping to meet up with a sperm. Now, you get your period if the egg doesn't meet up with the sperm. So, what happens in that situation is the the old ovarian follicle that released the egg is now called a corpus luteum. It looks like a shriveled up sultana, but it's making all those hormones. <laughs> and if the egg isn't fertilized, that little corpus luteum will die and it stops making the hormones. And that's why in that you refer to the week before your period as the hell week where your, <laughs> yeah, where your hormones are going down. Before, when you said luteal phase, I was like, yeah, hell week. Yeah. Yes, hell week. <laughs> so when your hormones are falling um, because that little corpus luteum is dying, um, that's when the endometrium, the lining of the uterus, gets the signal, no, no pregnancy this month. We're going to shed and start again. If you did get pregnant, um, what happens is that corpus luteum stays alive for a bit longer and it makes estrogen and progesterone at much higher levels. So instead of the estrogen and progesterone levels falling away, they climb up higher. And then the placenta um, will eventually take over and you'll have high estrogen and progesterone for all of your pregnancy. So many women will fit. So you'll have more stable hormones during your pregnancy, but you'll just have super high levels of estrogen and progesterone. So some women feel that they have that chilled out effect of the progesterone the whole time. They feel quite good and relaxed. Um, you know, so when it's it's it makes sense that when you have the baby then and you have the baby the placenta everything come out your hormones have to fall from this really high level of estrogen and progesterone that you've had over nine months to just mm. nothing and this is why women are at risk of well multiple the baby blues the baby blues exactly so that's the hormonal underpinnings of the baby blues as well as you know sleep deprivation and brand new baby and all of those other pressures but there's a huge hormonal shift and many women who have things like pm um you know severe pms or pmdd may experience more severe postnatal depression and things like that because there's a massive fluctuation after their baby is born does that make sense 
makes total sense. Thank you for that. Now, the next point that we were going to touch on is the pain level when it comes to periods. Yes. So I think that it's there's lots and lots of um, awareness now about that, you know, pain that is crippling and debilitating and and where women are in bed for multiple days of their cycle and not able to have a good quality of life is not normal and needs to be um, addressed. But it's important to also understand what normal is and what the normal, you know, what you can expect to be normal. And um, around about 90% of women will do report some pain with their periods. And that kind of pain is usually, it, it happens a couple of days before their period comes and might last for the first couple of days of their bleeding. And it's usually relieved by things like heat packs, Panadol, Nurofen, simple analgesics um, and doesn't really stop them from doing too much. They might want to be a bit um, more gentle and loving with themselves for those first one or two days and I always absolutely recommend that and I think that um, I think perhaps that's that's something that's been overlooked um, in our society that we don't allow often women to actually have slow down during that time and I would love it if we did live in a world where we we were granted that permission to slow down <laughs> that time have you heard of the book the red tent yes I've not read it but my girlfriends were telling me about it I think yesterday or perhaps the day before and talking about how there's this book the red tent and it's all about you know many 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 years ago how women would get sent to a tent when they were having their period so that they could just love on each other, look after each other and not really worry too much about much more than just having their period. Yes, and I think that to a degree, I think that we have, and it's not just women, but us as a society have lost the ability to slow down and to pay attention to the cycles of and the rhythms of life. And I would love you know, to see a world where, you know, I think some of the Scandinavian countries actually allow um, like menstrual leave, so a day off a month for their, for, for periods. And I actually think that doing that isn't sending a message that women are weak or women can't cope with the demands of, um, of, of modern life and, can't, and aren't as good as men. I just think that acknowledges that women are different to men and our strengths are different and it acknowledges that we have different physiology. Um, and I think that a, probably a lot of the time when women are just pushing themselves to the extreme, that doesn't actually help. It doesn't make, it doesn't help women with, with the pain with their periods and things like that. And it doesn't, I just would love to see that whole um, mindset change. Um, but I don't know when that might happen. <laughs> you have to watch. <laughs> Yeah, um, I think that there's a lot to be said for really, I just really think that women have kind of been conditioned to, if we're going to succeed, we have Keep to just up. be like men. We have to pretend yeah. that we don't have a fluctuating hormonal cycle and yeah, we have to pretend. Cry. Keep up, be tough, yep. And I just don't think that that's helping the world. I think that, and I know that this is a, 
there's a lot of work to do before we would get to my utopian idea of the world where um, women could be seen as strong and powerful um, because of our female hormones and because of our female bodies in a different way than men are strong and powerful um, and that our differences can be, you know, respected and just there be more of an awareness of our different physiologies and that we have different needs and and um but i think that that's where i would love things to head um but going back to the pain thing it's really quite normal for most women to have some pain with their periods and most women don't understand the reasons behind that either and so i think that Understanding why women have pain, some pain with periods um, also helps them to understand what's actually happening. Um, so when the lining of the uterus sheds, the the uh, there are things called prostaglandins, which are little inflammatory compounds, which are released, um, and they can irritate nerve cells inside the pelvis and the uterus. As well as that, the uterus is obviously a muscle, and so as it's kind of contracting to squeeze that blood out, um, then you can get less oxygen in the muscle, a little bit like a stitch if you were going for a run. So both of those things can contribute to um, pain with periods. And then sometimes when you're, you are having, um, you know, uterine cramps and, and, and period pain, the muscles that line the pelvic floor, um, which we never think about unless you've had a baby and those muscles all of a sudden are weak and you're having issues with controlling your bladder, um, but those muscles are also they can become too tight, not just weak. And sometimes if there's inflammation or if you're, you know, doubled over with pain with menstrual cramps, sometimes those muscles can tighten up and can go into spasm as well and they can contribute to pain. So they're the mechanisms of, of normal pain in the menstrual cycle. And the key is if it's relieved with, you know, simple things like heat packs, gentle stretches um, to help relax and open up the pelvis. Um, there's a great website called pelvicpain.org.au, which has got a, a section with some great stretches to, I think there's a set of eight that you can do um, every day if you're really prone to period pain or just in the week before leading up to your period and with your period um, that can really help to relieve the tension in those pelvic floor muscles and help with pain. Um, things like ginger tea, um, ginger root capsules have been shown in trials to be as effective as, as medications like ibuprofen. Um, so medications like, like Nurofen, ibuprofen, Ponstan, um, they're medications called um, anti-prostaglandins. So they actually mop up the little prostaglandins that are released when you have your period um, and help and really can help with pain that way. So they're probably the most effective. Um, Panadol, obviously, going for a gentle walk, um, eating really nourishing foods, slowing down if you can on that day. Um, they're really, really good ways to help with pain. And if those methods of helping with your cramps are, um, are working, um, then that's probably within the realm of normal. When it's not normal is if it's going on for days on end, if you're bed bound for days, you're missing multiple days of school or work, um, if, it, if you're having pain with sex, if it's affecting your quality of life, then it's definitely worth seeing um, 
a women's health professional about it, whether that's a doctor, um, so a GP, a gynecologist, a um, even a naturopath um, can give you some ideas on where to go forwards, but it definitely needs to be addressed because that is not normal. And the longer that kind of pain can go on, the more likely it is for women to um, our pain pathway systems to become sort of sensitised and for then pain to um, uh, happen throughout the, throughout the cycle at other times than just the period. And that can have a huge effect on women's quality of life. So, definitely seek help if it's in that more severe category because that isn't normal. I love that you've shared that because so many people do just accept what is their own individual um, experience of normal to be normal and then mm. you, you, they lose touch with realising, okay, just because it's your normal that you're in debilitating pain each month doesn't mean that it is normal or that it's your lot in life and just to sort of explore it and see if you can improve it. It should not be debilitating. It should not be. And there's lots of help. Um, and there are lots of other reasons for period pain that are not that sort of physiological um uh, cause that I was talking about. So other things which there have been a lot more awareness of lately, such as endometriosis, sometimes pelvic infections. Um, there are lots of lifestyle things that you can do to help with um, pain as well. So yeah, I think just getting an opinion um, and some help to figure out where to go to next um, is a really good idea because women shouldn't be suffering. They shouldn't be suffering. If And if, as you were talking earlier about how you just thought of the period as this thing and then, you know, you didn't, we often don't understand the rest of the cycle behind it and the ovulation and all that positive stuff, um, which is, you know, why we get a period in the first place um i think helping understanding all of that reframes actually getting a period into such a more positive light that that if you can be really in tune with your body the, and you and your period isn't debilitating actually having a period can be not even inconvenient it can actually be a time that that you give yourself permission to rest to be introspective, to be more loving and to give yourself more self-care. So it becomes something that's, you know, not even a dreadful, awful thing, maybe not your favourite thing, but something that, you know, you might even be able to enjoy to a certain extent or just um, um, be more... Yeah, exactly, exactly. Make make peace with. And but of course, if it's debilitating, you're not going to make peace with it. So you need to um, seek help in order to get to a more positive place. And mm-hmm. and there are lots of treatments out there for women who are you know having a dreadful time with their periods because it shouldn't be. It shouldn't be a dreadful thing. And you mentioned some lifestyle factors there are there certain foods that we should avoid around that time that might be more inflammatory you know just thinking about just listening to you talk about the uh, i'm going to butcher the name prostaglandins prostaglandins yes are there foods that i guess because i know for myself when i eat anti-inflammatory foods i can feel a difference in my body are there foods in general sort of you know across the board that women could consider avoiding around the time of their period Yes. Um, So I always talk about an anti-inflammatory Mediterranean style diet, which is 
been shown in lots of studies to be beneficial for all kinds of conditions, um, but it's definitely helpful for inflammatory conditions and pain. Um, and even for endometriosis has probably been the diet that's the, got the most evidence for, bearing in mind that dietary studies are very difficult to do because they cost lots and lots of money and they're typically... Um, not done well, not you know, not like drug trials where there's lots of money and vested interests involved. But the evidence that we do have on diet and menstrual pain are that, yeah, an anti-inflammatory Mediterranean-style diet, which means lots of fruit and veggies, particularly green, cruciferous vegetables, um, is really important. Um, avoiding foods like... Um, cow's dairy um, so even if you're doing it you know the week before your period or if you're having dreadful periods I always recommend say eliminating cow's dairy for say three months and seeing how it goes for you and if it makes no difference you can reintroduce it but a lot of women find that it actually makes a big difference um Sometimes gluten, so there's been some studies that show, particularly for women with endometriosis, that gluten can, um, that improve, that, um, sorry, removing gluten can improve their symptoms. Um, inflammatory seed oils as well can be, um, uh, can, can worsen pain. So, and then for some women with endometriosis, a low FODMAP type diet can also be beneficial um, but I would just recommend eating lots of fruit and veggies lots of fiber um, not too much red meat so um, so I would be eating organic meat when possible um, grass fed rather than grain fed because when it comes to omega-3s and omega-6s so omega-6s are in say grain in meat is particularly grain fed meat and in some of those inflammatory seed oils and they can be more inflammatory and cause more inflammation in the body whereas omega-3 fats which are in oily fish like salmon um, um, olive oil those kinds of things they're really um, anti-inflammatory so they can reduce those prostaglandins as well and uh inflammatory seed oils things like peanut butter well things like um like canola oil um vegetable oils they're often in say processed food where you'll have like a processed i don't know biscuits or cakes and it will say vegetable oil or canola oil or something like that um so i would just make sure that you're cooking with things like so peanut butter would be okay it has a mix i think of omega-6s and threes but nuts are generally not too bad um but cooking with things like grass-fed butter, coconut oil or olive oil. Olive oil is really good and it's got some anti-inflammatory benefits as, as well. Brilliant, that's really helpful. And the other and, thing is, sorry, um, no. I often recommend things like magnesium and zinc as really, really simple supplements to start taking if you do have pain with your periods because they can both decrease those prostag inflammatory prostaglandins as well. Magnesium is my go-to. I really, really notice a difference when I stop taking my magnesium tablets or my magnesium powder. Yeah, well, magnesium is also wonderful for PMDD and for sleep because it increases. Give it to me all. Yeah, it increases that in our brain. It's, it's, it's wonderful. So good to know. Now, the next point is 
about the pill. And the pill is one of those topics, Peter, that I am always asked about. I think at least once every couple of days, I'll have a DM from someone saying, I just want to know, are you using the pill? And now I personally don't use the pill. I'm not informed enough that I would feel comfortable speaking to why I don't exactly use it other than saying it doesn't sit right with me physiologically. Anytime in the past that I've tried the pill, it's made me really nauseous. I struggle to keep it down and it just, I don't know, I feel like it doesn't agree with me. But I'm excited to hear your professional and I guess personal opinions on the pill. I think that the pill can be a wonderful thing for many women um, who, you know, some of the women we've spoken about who may have debilitating pain or um, have just had a, a terrible time. I do think, and and obviously as a societal perspective, the pill was amazing for us as women to be able to be where we are today um, because without that sort of... Um, liberation of having to worry about having babies um I don't think women would be where we are today at all so it's incredible for that I think from a point of view of um dealing with women's health issues and period issues I think it's way overused and I think that often especially as doctors like you're trained that if someone comes in with a period problem whether it's a heavy period a painful period um here's a cool fact a crocodile can't stick out its tongue another cool fact you can get short-term health insurance for a month or just under a year in some states United Healthcare short-term insurance plans are designed for people who are between jobs, coming off their parents' plan, or turning a side hustle into a full-time gig. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, they offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage with access to a nationwide network of doctors and hospitals. Get more cool facts about United Healthcare short-term plans at uh1.com. PMS, whatever, missing periods even. The standard skin concerns. Yes acne things like that the standard thing to do would be just to put a woman on the pill and to me that just masks whatever issue is going on and it doesn't actually address any root cause or um, investigate for what's actually going on and try to fix it from a more um, holistic root cause point of view and for some women that may be the kind of treatment that they want and that may be where they're at in their life at the moment they just want the sort of band-aid solution and I think that's fine as long as women are completely informed about that that is a band-aid solution um, and that it hasn't addressed the underlying issues because why does does so many doctors go to the pill as the first port of call because that's what we get taught that's seriously what we get taught and um, it was only really um you know, when I was in my years of, um, you know, I'd finished medical school, I'd finished my gynecological training and I was seeing more and more women and I was thinking this, you know, I have an annoying brain where I just could just go with the why. Why, brain. Is, why is this happening? Why, 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 why? And I just didn't, just couldn't accept that, but this is just what you do. Because I wanted to get to the underlying, well, why is this happening for this person? Because often they would um, go off the pill later on and the problem is still there. Or, for example, you know, someone might have 
had missed, you know, very irregular periods and they might have polycystic ovarian syndrome, they might have high insulin and that's a condition that is like a pre-diabetic condition but no one would have investigated that and then they just get put on the pill and then they think that their periods are regular even though when you're on the pill Basically, what happens is the pill is a synthetic version of estrogen and progestin, which tricks the brain into thinking that the ovaries are making the hormones. So the brain just stops sending messages to the ovary, stops communicating with the ovary, and the ovary and the brain just kind of go to sleep. So then the whole show is just overridden by the pill hormones, which are just like a flat line. And so... And because most pills come in a pack where there's about three weeks of active hormone tablets and there's one week of sugar pills, and they were initially put in there back in the 60s because they realised and they were marketing it that women, like there's no need to have that in there. It's just that it looks like a more natural thing for women because women, when they were just taking the hormone tablets, just there was something uneasy about not getting a period every month so they just put the sugar tablets in there which mimics the natural fall in hormones when your egg isn't fertilized so then women on the pill get a withdrawal bleed but because everybody now understands that the period is more than just the period it's about the whole menstrual cycle when you're on the pill none of that menstrual cycle happens none of the egg being released None of the hormones being produced, none of that happens. So there's no need to have a period, but you just get a bleed on the pill because you take those sugar tablets. But a lot of women aren't properly explained how the pill works. So they could go, I I could be talking to a 35-year-old who's been on the pill for 15 years who started it for irregular periods or something and thinks, oh, well, that fixed it. And they have had no idea that they have had been having actually zero cycle for the past 15 years. Yeah, wow. It's so, it's so important to be informed, isn't it? Yes. And now if they did have, say, insulin resistance when they started and they've done nothing to address that, when, you know, now when they're 35 and their diet hasn't changed and, you know, they've done nothing to look at that underlying reason because you remember if something's off with the period, it's usually a sign of an underlying health problem. But now we're taking away. It's like with the pill. If you think about the period like that warning light on the dashboard of your car um, telling you something's wrong, if it's missing, if it's heavy, if it's painful, whatever, the pill is like putting a, putting tape over the warning light so it might be flashing at you underneath it but you can't see it anymore. Does that make sense? Mm-hmm makes total sense and then you add 5 10 15 20 years like you joke about then and then it just you get further and further away from the actual root cause yes and the root cause issue might get worse and worse and worse um because it's not being addressed and so and then the thing is if say they um so that my pet peeve is when women go on the pill when they're really young to regulate their cycles and I'm doing regulate obviously you can't see me podcasting (laughs) yes air quotes because often so when a girl first gets their period the brain ovary connection can take like it's like learning an instrument okay so when you first pathway has to form that's right when you first start to learn to play the piano you're not like Beethoven right away And so often you might 
have an irregular cycle. You might have some heavier periods because you're not always ovulating. Um, they might be a bit further apart. There are so many girls who get go to the doctor at that point. And um, it, now, to bearing in mind that on average it takes about two years for that pathway to mature from the age that you first get a period and up to eight years for it to be fully mature. Wow. So many women and young girls get put on the pill, um, you know, in those first few years after they have a period to regulate their cycle. But what it's actually doing, so back to the analogy of the piano, it's like saying, you're not very good at this. Um, I want you to, I'm just going to put on a, put on Spotify of Mozart or Beethoven, whoever I said, for the next 10 years and it will play perfectly because you'll be having these regular bleeds. That's a good analogy. But then in eight years when you turn the Spotify off, you expect that person, and then often I see these women who come and say, my period's really irregular. It's because their brain ovary um, access is still immature it's been on ice. Like you can't expect that person to all of a sudden be able to play the piano beautifully when it hasn't been able to practice for eight years. Does that make sense? It makes total sense. And it's such a common story. Like while whilst you were explaining it, I was thinking, yes, I can remember this happening. Like when I was a teenager, girlfriends getting taken to the doctors because their periods were irregular and they didn't like that, that you know, sense of not knowing the period was going to come so their mum would take them to the GP they'd get put on the pill bang they think it's all under control but it's such a um such a misrepresentation isn't it yes and so I think that basically when I say the pill isn't the only answer I think what should happen if you do have an issue with your period you should number one think of it as a sign of something underlying that may not be quite right and you should go exploring for whatever that is and be going to see somebody who will help you to do that and let you know of um you know and help and help to explain all of the tests and all of the things that they're doing um there are lots of ways so particularly the for the young girls who are you know um going through that development of their hypothalamic pituitary ovarian axis and there are lots of ways that you can support them through that time without necessarily completely stopping it because when you come off the pill, you still have to go through it again later on. And the problem is I often see women who are 35 now who've been on the pill that whole time, then their periods are super irregular, then they're not getting a period for four months. And, you know, A, that could have could just be still that they're that it's immature or it could be that there was an underlying thing going on like PCOS that was never picked up and now they want to have a baby and instead of having a few years to actually get things right, to understand their bodies and to um, give their bodies, allow their bodies to have a chance to actually regulate on its own, they don't have that time anymore. And so they're now pushed really into um, IVF and other um, assisted reproductive techniques which is fine but it could that could have been avoided so I think it's a it's important to understand what's normal um, and then important to understand how that you can actually support things like heavy periods or painful periods um, without um, having to go on the pill and that having an irregular cycle when you first get it is actually 
pretty normal and it's actually, you know, it doesn't need to be fixed, um, if that makes sense. It makes total sense. And I know so many girlfriends in my age group now, like in our early 30s, who have said, you know, that they do want to have babies, so they're going to come off the pill soon because it's kind of a known thing, I think, for many of us that if you are on the pill, when you decide to come off, it may take a little while to fall pregnant. But now understanding what you just explained about the brain ovary connection, that pathway needing to form. That's obviously what's occurring for a lot of people when they do come off the pill. It's like their body going, oh, hang on, we haven't spoken to each other in this way in a while. Let us figure out how to communicate again. Yes, that's absolutely right. And also because the pill um, takes away that warning light, say if you did go on the pill after your periods had established a nice regular cycle, which is great. Um, But then in the 10 years that you're on the pill, for example, you lose a lot of weight, you're really restrictive in your eating or you're doing too much exercise or you're 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 living um, too much of a stressful life. If you weren't on the pill, your body would have given you a clue that that wasn't good for you because your periods may or become really irregular. Um, but you haven't had that. You Back haven't had to the that signal. Card. Yes. So you haven't you haven't been able to course correct. So when you come off the pill, you need to then like you need to put your detective hat on if it doesn't come back straight away, you know, um, or if it doesn't come back to normal within a few months. And obviously we're talking about women who aren't in that, you know, adolescent time. Um, if they're presenting with period problems later on, if they have an irregular cycle then it's really important to investigate why that is at that time um, and, yeah, try to find the root cause and then um, and then you can treat that specifically and that may or may not include the pill for some women but I think it's really important to then, once you understand the cause of what's happening, present women with a range of options from more lifestyle um, medic, you know, medical options, um, and the pill may may be included in that list, or other um, hormonal drugs. But then women need to have a very detailed discussion with their healthcare provider about how how they work um, and what are the potential risks and side effects. And I think as long as that discussion has been had, and a woman feels that that is the right option for her then all power to them. That's great. But I feel that mostly the pill is used um, like a Band-Aid very quickly and without the appropriate counselling for women. And what about for the pill in terms of contraception? Yeah, it's really good. It's a, it's a, When used correctly, it's about 99% effective for contraception, um, which is great um in the real world it's about 91 percent effective so um you know that takes into consideration women who might miss a pill and things like that um but it can have but yeah it is an effective form of contraception i think as well when it comes to women who are going to the doctor um purely for contraceptive counseling that all of the options for contraception are discussed, not just the pill. Um, so things like the IEDs, um, also condoms, also for women who are interested, things like, you know, natural, um, like fertility awareness methods of family planning. Um, 
used you know, with barrier forms of contraception like condoms, I think it's important that all of that's discussed so that they can make an informed decision about what's important to them, like whether efficacy is the most important thing, so how well it works is the most important, or if there are, you know, the, le- the least side effects, if that's the most important thing. I think it's just really important to have the whole range of um, options on the table for the woman and to, for the woman to feel like she's the driver in the seat of, you know, the decision that she makes regarding contraception or treatment for period issues and the doctor or the healthcare provider is a navigator who's helping her with maps and directions um, and providing her with all the information she can then use to make the right decision for her. I love that. And again, coming back to questions that I'm often getting asked in my DM, um, I often get asked about contraception, which is a strange thing to ask a stranger. Yes, I was thinking that when you were asked about the get. Oh my gosh, I get asked all sorts of things, I tell you, Peter, but so many people do say to me, what are you using for contraception or, hey, what is the best form of contraception? And I know it's a really big swing to ask this, but is there a best form of contraception or is it really back to what's mentioned about, no, 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 there's no best way. It's just, hey, here is all the information. Now you take it and you put it through your own filter and lens of what's important. Yeah, exactly. I think it's about what's best for the particular woman at the particular life stage she's at because what's best for her at 19 may not be what's best for her when she's, you know, 39 and have had, has had all of her children, you know. They may be different. So, I mean, in terms of effectiveness of contraception, that's one thing to consider. Um, but then the other things to consider are potential side effects, how long they last, ease of use, um, uh, whether it's reversible or irreversible, of course. So they're the things that you would consider. I think um, just briefly I'd go, I'd be talking about in terms of the reversible contraceptives, um, things like the most effective forms are the intrauterine devices, so the Mirena or the Kylena, which is the little sister to the Mirena. They're both hormonal IUDs, so intrauterine devices, and they contain progestin, which is one of the hormones that can be in the oral contraceptive pill. And they are a little T-shaped device that sit inside the uterus, and they work by um, acting as, you know, taking up all the room in the uterus. It also contains the hormone, which basically, remember I said estrogen makes the lining of the uterus thick, like fertilizer. Progestin actually makes it thinner. So it's like a little lawn mower mowing the lawn of the uterus down so it doesn't allow a nice, thick, beautiful, juicy lining for a baby to implant. It makes the environment really inhospitable. And it also increases the um, the thickness of the cervical mucus, which is a you know, prevents sperm from getting into. Those two are probably more than 99% effective for contraception and they last about five years. Um, 
The copper IUD is a non-hormonal contraceptive um, intrauterine device. So it doesn't have the hormonal effect, but it just works by taking up all the room in the uterus and causing a bit of inflammation, which is inhospitable to sperm. And again, that's almost as effective as those two IUDs and would be suitable for someone who doesn't want any hormones and probably also for somebody who has uh, a lighter period because it can make periods heavier. The other, the first two, the hormonal ones, will often make periods lighter or sometimes take them away altogether. But paradoxically, they don't affect the ovaries from making their own hormones and releasing an egg most of the time. So you may have one of those hormonal IUDs and you may not be getting a period, but you'll still be having the menstrual cycle in the background. So if you take it out, your um, brain and your ovary connection hasn't been interrupted, like with the pill. Does that make sense? Makes total sense. Hasn't been compromised in the same way if it was completely, the communication was severed. Yes, exactly. So they're the most effective. The other one that's as effective is the Implanon, which is a progestin-containing um, like little rod that goes underneath the skin in the arm. It's about 99% effective too, and it um, lasts for three years. Um, it, um, I don't tend to use that as much because it can cause a lot of irregular bleeding um, that tends to not go away. But for about a fifth of the women who have it, they can have no periods as well. Um, it does affect ovulation, however, um, so like the pill. Um, and then there's your oral contraceptive pill, which we talked about, and there's a progestin-only form of the pill um, called the mini pill, which many women might be familiar with, which has a lower efficacy, so sort of 96% effective when used um, perfectly. But in the real world, because you have to remember to take it very much at the same time every day, it's about 89% effective. And they all have different side effects and um, other things so that you need options. to pick it up. Yeah, there are lots of options. So I feel like that could have been a po little podcast in itself. <laughs> it totally could be, but I think it's great to have these conversations because it's this is this is the stuff that women want to know. And if you're fortunate enough to have a great doctor in your community that you can go to and have these conversations, brilliant. But I know so many people aren't. So many people feel like they're rushed in and out of their GP and they've not got the time or the resources to go and have these chats. So Whilst I know it's a lot of information in one podcast episode, I do think that it's going to be really, really helpful. And we do have just two more points to touch on. Can I and just quickly say one more thing about contraception? Of course. The other thing is not to mention that condoms are a form of contraception and they're great. And if you're having um, you know, casual sex and not with a really stable partner, they're absolutely the thing that you should be using because, of course, they're the only one that prevents STIs as well. Um, and if you're using condoms, well, you know, properly, um, they have, you know, above a 90% uh, efficacy rate as well. And for some women who don't want hormones, who want that added protection of, of STIs, using condoms um, and then if they had an accident using, say, the morning after pill um, right away could be something that they would want to do as well as um, if you are using condoms, being aware of 
what time in your cycle that you're actually fertile because it's only for a couple of days at ovulation and the rest of the time you're not going to be. So that requires, you know, knowledge about, you know, looking at cervical mucus and basal body temperature. There are lots of apps out there that can help you with that. Um, and, you know, for some women who have a who who feel safe doing that, who have a you know really respectful partner, that might be the kind of treatment, not treatment, contraception that they want to employ rather than a hormonal form. So it's not just hormonal contraceptives. I'm glad that you added that in. Thank you. Now we did kind of touch on this in point as well, um, but speaking about age and fertility, and I guess there are so many women now who are in their mid to late 30s who are trying to work out do I want to have kids or perhaps they do they definitely know they want to have children but they're not quite where they thought they would be perhaps they've not found a partner or they're really advancing in their careers there's so many different reasons as to why women might find themselves at a stage of life where they've not yet had children and they're you know not sure when it's going to happen or how it's going to happen can we talk about that? Do you suggest women look into their options and at what age should they? Yes, this is a really hard one because um, I think first and foremost, women understanding from a young age that ideally, um, you know, and I guess there's also dovetails on the conversation about if we spend the whole first half of our reproductive lives squashing our reproductive systems into the ground with zero knowledge about what's actually happening, of course, it's going to be more difficult later on. I would love to see um, in schools more of an understanding about our reproductive windows because to a degree, we can't really escape that. Um, of course, there's technology that can that can help us to prolong our fertile window. But, you know, women in their 20s and, and early 30s have the best um, chances of success with pregnancies. So a woman in her who's 30 has a, has a chance of falling pregnant per, per month or per cycle of about 20 to 25%. Um, and... After that, it, it declines. So um, up at about 35, it's probably about 15%. And at about 40, it's probably less than 10%. And over 40 to 42, it's probably less than 5% per cycle, okay? And it's not only that, but the number, so obviously the numbers of eggs that we have um, declines with age and the quality of our eggs also declines. So quality of our eggs, um, the, the, the poorer quality of eggs means that the more likely we are would be to have a miscarriage if we did conceive as well. So miscarriages are less common with women in their twen early 20s um, and common. So, you know, miscarriages above 40 would be um, very common, probably up to 90%. Um, and when it comes to chromosomal or genetic issues in eggs, which can then lead on to miscarriages, um, women in their, uh, when they get to about 30, 37, have about 60% of their eggs have abnormal chromosomes or abnormal genetics. And above 40, it's up to 80%. So, wow. so ideally, um, thinking about if having a family is something that you want to do, thinking about it and 
and, you know, trying to prioritise it. And I understand that there's so many barriers to that. One, our society is so anti-family friendly um, and it's not built to support people who work and also have a family. It always puts the brunt of child rearing on mothers generally rather than um, than then considering it a, a societal responsibility and something that should be shared um, amongst both of our, you know, both genders and as a society as a whole. So there are lots of barriers for women. Um, and I was definitely one of those women who got to um, 35 or 36 when I went off, I went off the pill at 35 or 36 after being on it for 10, 15 years um, and found it difficult to get a, a period back and um, and then, you know, luckily was able to conceive my son in that, um, you know, six-month period after I stopped the pill. Um, but I was lucky uh, and I see lots of women who are in their late 30s who are, who are thinking that they want to have babies for the first time and it's just a really difficult position to be in and there's it not an easy so answer. It just seems so yes. doesn't it? Like I'm just thinking, you know, it's saying that it's, the prime time really physiologically wise to have to fall pregnant and to carry a pregnancy to term and have a healthy baby is your early 20s like you're still such a baby yourself yes and like it's just so I I can just imagine so many women listening going oh it's like how how do we do that how do we have our career how do we save how do we do these things like it's just one of those juxtapositions of going how do you hold both it's like this is true and this is true but it's very yes it's a very inconvenient truth and there's zero way I would have could have have had a baby in my early 20s no way Um, but I think what we need to be doing is talking to women about their cycle so they understand what a normal menstrual cycle is when they're when they're fertile window is how to recognize that um if you know probably the ideal time to be thinking about it is around 30 if you can and you're in a position where you're able to to start around then or in your early 30s Um, if you have been on the pill or another form of contraception and you're wanting to conceive um you know within one or two years i I can't, and you're in a position where if you did conceive earlier, it would be okay. I do often say maybe go off, you know, your hormonal birth control and um, start using barrier method like condoms and things and then start seeing if your cycle is regular, if it's not too painful, there are no other red flags so that you can address them earlier rather than later. Um, and then if there are any problems, you can you can fix them so that you're still, you know, egg quality isn't an issue. Um if you're around your early 30s and you don't have a partner but you really, really want to have babies or you're definitely, you know, you've got a partner but having physically having a baby right now isn't something that you can do for a variety of reasons, then I would, um, you know, encourage talking to a fertility specialist about fertility preservation like, um, like egg freezing. And egg freezing isn't like the isn't, – isn't like a – you know, silver bullet. It's also complicated and has its pros and cons. Um, and the reality is that many women who do freeze eggs, which and, and egg freezing, I think many people don't understand. Just it requires basically IVF, so it requires an IVF cycle 
but when the eggs are retrieved, they're just not fertilised and they're just frozen at that point. Um, it, um, it, so it requires an IVF cycle and it also depends on what age you, you freeze the eggs. So if you're freezing your eggs around your early 30s, then you have the, the greatest chance of having a future pregnancy with those eggs because your eggs are generally going to be better than if you froze your eggs at 37. And remember, you would have maybe at least 50% of them being having abnormal genetics at that time. So you need to freeze more eggs in order to get a pregnancy than you would have at 30. Does that make sense? Yeah, it makes total sense. So, and, and often the stats are that women who do freeze their eggs as an in case, it's like a backup plan, I suppose, Often an insurance policy. Yeah, it is an insurance policy, but often they don't use them. So they do the phrasing as their backup insurance policy, meet their person in a couple of years, then um, try to fall pregnant naturally, and often they do, which is fantastic. Um, and then the I, eggs I just wonder, I've, I was just going to say, I wonder too how much of that happening is the component of it just removes the stress and the pressure of meeting that person have, you know, to fall pregnant with quickly because I, I hear so many stories of couples who have trouble falling pregnant and then they adopt and the moment they adopt a child, then they fall pregnant naturally. And it's almost like taking the pressure off allows things to happen with a bit more ease. So I wonder for those people who have gone to the trouble of freezing their eggs and having the IVF cycle and just having that peace of mind of knowing, hey, I do have my backup plan happening over here might just sort of make things a little easier when they do meet their person. Yes, and especially in the dating pool, when you're desperately wanting to have a baby because you sense your clock ticking, I think many women end up with perhaps a partner that they may not have chosen otherwise because they could sense that pressure. Um, and it makes it, it is really difficult for women who are a single at that time and are worried and really want to uh, make sure that they have a good chance of, of um, having a baby later on. So I think if you're not ready for whatever reason, don't have a partner or just not ready in terms of your life stage, talking to a fertility specialist about the potential for freezing eggs as a backup policy is um, a good thing to do knowing that it requires an IVF cycle and often a few cycles because in order to, we would say that say if you were around 30, we would recommend at least probably 15 eggs in order to um, give you a good chance of having one baby um, and probably 30 eggs to have a few babies. And the older you get, the more eggs you need in order to guarantee or to... to Have more viable. Yes, exactly. Because the problem with freezing, with, uh, freezing eggs is that although the technology that we have now that freezes eggs compared to what it used to be in the past is much better, still um, when we thaw them, there's not all of them thaw and they're okay. So there's, you know, there's about an 80% thaw rate. So about 20% of them may not make make it when they're thawed. So say if you had 15 eggs, you thawed the 15 when you, were, you found your partner and say you'd been trying for a while and you hadn't fallen pregnant and you decided to do IVF um, and you're going to use your eggs and your partner's sperm. So you thaw the 15 eggs, you say 
12 of them thaw properly and then you put them together with the sperm and say nine of them fertilize and then you grow them to a day five embryo and then about four of them might end up as embryos and a few of them might be good quality. So from that 15 eggs, you might have three or four embryos. And out of the three or four embryos, depending again on the age of when you froze them, um, you might have a chance per embryo of transfer of a baby of between 30 and 50%, depending on your age. Um, so again, you know, you might end up with one or two children from those embryos or even one. So you do need to have quite a lot of eggs in order to have um, a good chance of having a baby in the future. And I imagine this is not a cheap endeavour. I imagine it's rather expensive to do. Yes, it is. But the main thing is if you're thinking about it, do it earlier rather than later because you'll be more successful. If you're going to – if you – you know, if you are going to do it because it's just not the right time and you're thinking about it, do it now rather than in a few years' time because you'll end up having to do hopefully less cycles um, because your eggs, you know, you may be able to get more eggs per cycle um, because your ovaries are in better, better shape than you would if you were older. So as someone who's, say, 39, we might struggle to get five eggs at a time from her ovaries, but someone who's 30, you might be able to get 15 all in one go. That's such helpful information i'm sure a lot of our listeners will really be listening up and taking this on board and as you said it would be great if this was a sort of information that i mean and i don't know whether they are now or not but i know that when i was in high school i definitely wasn't told this sort of thing like i think no. that the more the more info that we have the more empowered we are to make a better decision I think we were told don't get an STI and don't get pregnant, um, which and is put very bad. I want a banana and move yes, on. <laughs> a banana, yeah. And nothing about pleasure and nothing about um, future fertility. And to a degree, probably when I was 16 and someone told, if someone told me this, I would be thinking, oh, God, well, that seems like ages away. It's 30 so old. <laughs> yeah. But I do think that understanding the menstrual cycle so we can understand what it means and, um, you know, our, how to evaluate our own fertility is a good start. Absolutely. And now last but not least, the last thing on our list is that vulvas come in all different shapes and sizes. Yes. I just wanted to put this on because I often get approached by women who come come to see me because they're worried about their um, vulva or their labia or the appearance of their, their labia. So just for some terminology, because again, lots of women still will come and see me and say, you know, I've got an issue with down there or my vagina or they're, they're just like I find the fact that as women, this incredibly important part of ourselves we just don't have the language oh, to such a openly about it. So many women. Yeah, and it's so disempowering. Um, yeah, we have lots of discussions in our house about different names for vaginas and vulvas that I won't um, shock you with. But my husband's always telling me to to, to stop talking about all of the alternate names for vulvas. You, you won't shock. I am exactly the same. From the time the kids were two, it's like this is an arm, that's a leg, that's your penis, they're your testicles, that's a vulva, like. I am so big on calling body parts what they're 
called. And it's important. There's lots of really great research that shows that that actually helps to prevent, um, you know, childhood sexual assault and things like that if we use correct anatomical terms. Plus, again, it's the whole culture of women being ashamed of our sexuality, our, um, you know, our reproductive organs. It's just that whole vibe that that um that it's imbued with so anyway so women will often say you know down there is not right and so the outside of the the the, um the external genitals of a woman is called our vulva and that's usually made up of our labia so there's the labia majora which is the outer lips and then the labia minora which is the inside lips so the labia majora is the bit that has hair on it and the labia minora is the hairless bit Um, and often women might come and say my one side's bigger than the other or, um, I, you know, and they'll have, um, or they'll be worried about the size of their labia minora, um, which is the inside lips. And the thing is, um, so in pornography, which young people are so much more exposed to these days, um, you know, it's all one type of vulva and in especially in print pornography, they didn't used to be able to show um, labia minora, so they would airbrush it out. Exactly um, what I was just about to say, like flashbacks, like when we were growing up without the internet and it was all like, you know, the magazines, like the Playboys and whatever, you open up to a centrefold and it's just this tiny little airbrushed slit. Yes, and, and women thought that that's what they should look like. And um, so they come in completely different, like it's like everything else in our bodies. None of our faces aren't the same, you know, the, the size, our hands aren't the same, our vulvas aren't the same. So some women have got, um, you know, labia majora that completely enclose everything. Some people have got tiny little labia majora and bigger labia minora. Um, and there is, and so I rarely do surgery to to you know trim or change things I think that it's generally cosmetic um, and I'm mainly about helping women to understand that their bodies are normal and whole and beautiful just as they are um, and they don't have fit some cookie cutter mold occasionally if you know someone is over 18 and um, has a lot of discomfort or, um, you know, because of one labia being much longer than the other or something like that, then I might do a surgery to, to help even that out and, and reduce discomfort. But even then, I'm very reluctant because there's a lot of nerve endings in our labia, which can be um, damaged by surgery. And, you know, men have got external genitalia that come out and we don't go around chopping that off. Um, so I think it's just really important for women to understand that there's a wide variety of normal and whatever you've got is generally normal. If you are concerned, please see somebody who can hopefully reassure you. Um, but I've never really seen somebody and gone, yes, yes, that's definitely abnormal. It's all within a realm of normal. There are some really amazing resources. There's a website called the Labia Library, um, which is, I think it's thelabialibrary.org maybe. And I'll find um, out and I'll put it in the show notes. Yeah, and it's brilliant and it's a whole webpage of different labias and um, from different angles and so you can see that there's no one-size-fits-all approach and and 
Um, yeah, and I think that's just really important because most women feel this pressure from what they think they need to be like from either a boyfriend or a partner or from looking at a porn and thinking, God, I don't look like that. There must be something wrong with me. And because women don't usually go around naked together, we don't get the privilege of being able to see that everyone looks different. So as a gynecologist, I have that privilege and I can tell you that everybody is different and beautiful and whole and, um, and fine. I think that's such an important thing to share and a wonderful um, note to end our chat on today. I think that any one of these points we could have just spoken about for hours and hours because it's all such important information. Um, So I'm so grateful again for your time and your knowledge. Where can our listeners connect with you? So you can find me on Instagram at Dr. Peter Wright. Um, I'm at Eve Health in Brisbane. Um, yeah, there are the, and and there's an email I think there if you've got any questions or or want to know more. Brilliant. I will make sure we pop all of that in the show notes. Again, thank you so much for all of your knowledge on this top on these topics. It is so appreciated. No problem. Sorry about talking about changing the world to my utopian vision of um, respecting women's bodies and making space for women's physiology. But I do think that hopefully one day we'll get there. Oh, I think that's the dream. It is (laughs) the dream. It is the dream. And it's funny that you say that because when I was talking to my friends about the Red Tent book, I was sharing that a couple of years ago I read a book and it's a personal growth book and they were saying, you know, when women have their period, they really should be allowed to go inwards and go quiet. And I could remember thinking, oh, that's so unrealistic. But the more educated I get on the topic, the more impassioned I find myself going, yes, this is the way of the future. This is how things should be happening for us. It should absolutely be. Have you read Lucy Peach's book yet? No, I haven't. I've, I've written it down here because I'm like, oh, I need to get on it. So she even writes about the idea of the red tent in her book and how when when men went on the hunt, women would go into this red tent and it was seen as this really powerful thing. And then over time they um, kind of sort of disbanded the women and they went into the, they created rituals with bloodletting and things as well, like the circumcision and stuff like that, um, because they could recognise this power that the, the women had. I can't remember the exact story, but it was just so, it's amazing. So period queen, you'll be an absolute convert. Okay. So I've got on my list here, period queen by Lucy Peaches and the period repair manual. Yeah. As well as these two resources, the pelvicpain.org and the labia library. So I'll make sure I get all of that in the show notes as well for all of our listeners. No worries. That's great. Hold up. What was that? Boring. No flavor. That was as bad as those leftovers you ate all week. Kiki Palmer here. And it's time to say hello to something fresh and guilt free. Hello, Fresh. Jazz up dinner with pecan crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Now that's music to my mouth. Hello? Fresh. Let's get this dinner party started. Discover all the delicious possibilities at HelloFresh.com.